upon this blade and enter the circle with fear in your heart. How do you enter? With perfect love and perfect trust. Welcome to the Craft Movie Retrospective Series from Now Playing. Oh shit. It's the bitches of Eastwick. Hosted by Arnie. Trouble from all over the world to hear him speak about this kind of stuff. Stuart. You guys are really indulgent. I'm sorry. And Jacob. We can make things happen. I mean, this is it. This is real. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Do you want in or do you want to leave the circle? Just tell me right now. I don't want out. Listener discretion is advised. Girls, watch out for those weirdos. We are the weirdos, mister. Today, we're discussing... The craft. Can't you just smell the flannel? <laughs> Starring Feruza Balk, Robin Tooney, Nev Campbell, Rachel True. Directed by Andrew Fleming. This is the now playing co host who comes on to anything with tits, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob. And I am the weirdo, Mr. Happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're recording this before Halloween, just a few days. <laughs> We would have liked to have gotten this out earlier. I don't know why we're putting it out after it, though. <laughs> I don't know what we could have done. Like, just putting it out there, there's seven Tremors movies. The newest one was released on the week of Halloween, and there would have been no room to cover craft earlier. Even if we skipped Manchurian Candidate, we would have been late on that craft two movies. And you had a rifle pointed at my head that we were not skipping Manchurian Candidate. We were not pushing Manchurian Candidate. You had your potent hypnotic suggestion. Yeah, that's got to hit election day. Why are we doing the craft, whether it's Halloween or not? Why are we doing this? Because it's 2020, and hindsight is always 2020. (laughs) (laughs) There's a dearth of new movies and I knew there was a sequel coming for The Craft. I'd heard about it for about a month before it was out. I think that's when they first announced it. And I'm like, nah, direct-to-video sequel. I'm, I always think Cabin Fever 2, which is perhaps the worst sequel ever made. And then I saw the sequels coming from Blumhouse. It has David Duchovny. And I'm like, okay. I saw a trailer. I'm like, it looks legit. And I love... The craft from the 90s. Okay, I'm glad there's a fan here because I do feel it's weird. And, and like, look, gender stereotypes aside and all that, it's weird that three men in their 40s are talking about this film. <laughs> I also want to point out, we have Rosemary's Baby coming up, a movie about people that are into the occult. And maybe this will be some kind of warm up for that. Listen, this is a movie with a very long shadow. Really? <laughs> Not only are they making a sequel 25 years later... So much of culture has been influenced by this sleeper hit. Oh, okay. I I don't even know what you're going to say, but I already disagree. I think I do. (laughs) Can I take a guess? Is this the pilot to Charmed? Yes. I mean, the fact that this has a remake of the Smith song in it, and then Aaron Spelling uses a cover of the same song for his opening to Charmed, but even beyond Charmed. I mean, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, I I think you're elevating the worth of the uh, television series more than I would, considering I've never watched it. Oh, I saw like half an episode because it was on the TV at the gym. 
I watched Charmed for a few seasons till Shannon Doherty left, kind of the same as 90210. I don't even love Shannon Doherty. I don't know why I quit her shows when she leaves. I'm still waiting for the part where we learn about the legacy of the craft. Like, what is its long shadow? Because we got a TV show kind of based on it. Without the craft, we would not have gotten Buffy and Charmed and all that tween supernatural stuff. I mean, we had Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Buffy had come out before this, right? Only in theaters. The TV show came out uh, about two years after this. Just around enough time to start production and go, look at how much this craft has a cult following and it made so much money. And you're the WB. You need a show. And without that stuff, I don't think we'd have Twilight. So I believe there is a direct lineage from the craft to the cultural hit Twilight. And without Twilight, we wouldn't have Fifty Shades of Grey. It's seven degrees of Kevin Bacon here, and it all goes back to the craft. You're not bolstering the case for the craft having a legacy. Like, are, do we want Fifty Shades of Grey? I am imagining a much better world than the one I live in. <laughs> I'm not saying that its legacy is something to envy, but that a lot of things tie back to this movie. This movie is the first domino to fall in a series of Teenage Supernatural. It is not something that was really looked at before. I mean, Buffy flopped. This is the 11th highest grossing movie about witches in history. (laughs) You really have just tried (laughs) to just take something out of nothing. For all (laughs) movies with four teenage witch girls at a private Catholic school, this is the top. (laughs) Yeah, this movie is not in any way that I know people that like it. I don't think anyone would call this one of the great films of all time. Like, even the people that like it. I'm not saying it should be put in the AFI. It's a cultural touchstone for you, though. Yeah, I believe it's a generational touchstone. Yes. Uh, you know, I never saw it. This is my first time watching it for this review. Uh, again, a movie about teenage girl witches at, at high school? No, that's not something I would have wanted to see in 1996. No, me either. There's no way I would have watched this. I was in film school. Like, come on. <laughs> like, I'm watching Bergman movies. You think I'm going to watch this shit? No way. Absolutely not. I was. I could have been more against commercial filmmaking at this point in my life. So, like, this... Here's the surprise. When I finally did see this movie... You have seen it. Yes, I saw this movie fairly recently. I would say right before I left L.A., whatever Halloween that was before I left, probably 2015, a friend of mine was like, come over and we'll watch this movie. It's real fun. I said, okay. And this was someone that liked Clueless, Bring It On, Mean Girls. I'm like, okay. I That's your barometer for fun, for, for what you were expecting. I didn't watch those in the day either, but like I watched them and I'm like, oh, they're fine. That's fine little comedy movie. Nothing was funny about this film. Like I couldn't figure out what I was watching because I was like, this is not a female empowerment comedy at all. No, it's a female empowerment film, not a comedy though. Empowerment? Mm, well, we'll have to discuss that. Yeah. Uh, no. Hold, hold it, Stuart. We will discuss. Yeah, this is very much like witchcraft is equated with drug use. And the more you do it, the further you fall. It felt like a heroin film, but with like cauldrons and crystal balls instead of hidden glass pipes. Well, Jacob, it's not that I'm not rigid in my masculinity, but all of these... I mean, I said that kind of jokingly, but yes, I do want to be aware that I would have biases at that age against a film like this. Yeah, well, all of the women in this film are my age. And at that point, I was 22. And so a movie about four hot witches? 
sign me up. Now, did I see this in theaters? No, I was graduating college <laughs> the weekend this movie came out. I'm not even joking. Exact same weekend. This could have been a gift to yourself for graduating. Going to see it in theater. But when it was out on video, I rented it, watched it, went, wow, that was a lot better than I expected. And then whenever it was on cable, I'd turn it on and have it on in the background. So what, 20, 30 times I've probably seen this film, you know, without sitting down and paying full attention. 20 to 30 times. That's outrageous. Wow. We're only on this earth for a limited time, Arnie, like 20 to 30 times. I associate these kinds of movies, when Arnie would get excited about this, I associate it with, like, there's someone that he has a crush on in this cast. Who is it? Is it Nev? Is it Feruza? No, none of them. Literally none of them. They're all very pretty women, but I didn't crush on any of them. No. Feruza Balk, has she ever been cast better, and can she ever play anything else? This and American History X. Yeah, I was gonna say, she's cast pretty well as a Nazi, and I always think of the Waterboy, like, that might have been the first film where I really recognized her, and, ooh boy, what an awful film. But she was totally miscast in that. What is she doing in that film? I, why is anyone in that film? Well, she's playing Nancy from here, but dating Adam Sandler's Waterboy? That's right. Doesn't she have, like, magical powers? Or doesn't she do a voodoo ceremony or something in that movie? They went through a ton of auditions for this movie. Like, every up-and-coming actress at the time, including Angelina Jolie and Alicia Silverstone, tried out for this movie. And Feruza Balk came in, and the director's like, no screen test. You're cat. You are the character. You're cat. <laughs> you look like a witch. <laughs> you got the role. Here's the weird thing is like she started out wholesome. I don't know if people remember this, but she was cast in the Judy Garland role for Return to Oz. I saw that. I don't remember that movie, but I've seen it. I can't believe she was Dorothy. Yeah, it was a sequel, a direct one. Like it's not just like something people came out like it's a direct sequel to Wizard of Oz. It's not the Wiz. Yeah, right. Or like, you know, sometimes people kind of like steal and like we're doing Wizard of Oz, but it doesn't feel connected. This is MGM in the 80s. She is the little girl in it. I saw it. It is weird and not... It's very Feruza Balk in that way. It's dark in ways that should be wholesome. I also saw her in a little Sundance movie, Gas Food and Lodging, where she was in an ensemble of women. Allison Anders, you remember her? She was one of the people that booked a room in that Tarantino Rodriguez Four Rooms project. The Madonna one. It was filled with witches, as it would happen. Well, her, she got Feruza in that. And, you know, okay, Marlon Brando turned her into a cat. <laughs> a cat, yeah. <laughs> I, that, that's that's what I know her from. Those are the things. I don't have a deep association with her other than she has a grungy, riot girl kind of quality now. Again, the director just talked to her and was like, you don't even have to act for this part. So you just get the part of Nancy. And they had to just keep screen testing tons of other girls until they ended up with the cast they have. And Most of them weren't really known quantities back then. Nev Campbell was one season into Party of Five. I forgot she was on that. Yeah, Scream, Party of Five. And even in that, like, I feel like nobody really likes her in the Scream movies. It's always, like, the other people that are the attention getters. The Rose McGowans, the Dave Arquettes. But this is the movie that would get her Scream. More Long Shadow. Uh, Scream would have been made regardless of the success of the craft. It just wouldn't have her, maybe. Robin Tooney, I mean, I knew her from Empire Records, where she shaved her head. If you think she's wearing a wig this whole movie, it's because she is, because she shaved her head for Empire Records. That's why her hair is so bad in this. 
Yeah, I don't feel like this cast has gone on to do tremendous work. I don't think that even the names that I do know have done any good work. I'd say the biggest person to walk out of this is probably Brecken Meyer. Yeah, and what has he done? Like, I, I know that name. I know that face. I can't tell you what he's done, though. Euro trip or road trip or one of those trips. Okay, the long legacy of the craft got us to road trip. <laughs> he did do road trip, yes. He was John in the Garfield movies. Oh, you're not helping but his case. This is a movie that made $55 million on what was initially like a $10 million budget, and they ballooned it to 15 when they had confidence in the film. After the first edit. To Arnie, this is a seminal film event, and I will try to appreciate from that standpoint. But I would say that very little about this movie has been celebrated for its filmic qualities. It's a kitsch movie, right? If you were the right age when this came out, this would have been a movie that you saw and you look back fondly through the lens of nostalgia. The one who I know least of this quartet is Rachel True. I mean, before this, she had done another supernatural film that I'd seen, Embrace of the Vampire. Oh, I know you saw that film. You you were so excited about that film. <laughs> Let me tell you, they do more than embrace those vampires. There's a remake of that. You're lucky it's not a retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, we could talk about these casts being people that were in films of the 90s, but I really don't, you're really not making the case for this is the launching pad in the way that, say, Don Hughes and The Breakfast Club was. I mean, I don't I don't see, like, dazed and confused, like, Oscars and acclaim and decades of work coming out of that cast here. It became clear to me what this movie was when I watched it again for this review. Like I said, I experienced it originally as a failed attempt at doing Clueless with witch hats, and now it seems pretty obvious that they wanted to make the Lost Boys with girls. That was the thought. Instead of vampires, it's witches, and we can just tell that Joel Schumacher story again. No sexy sax man in this, though. Yeah. It wasn't that direct, but I believe by the time the final script got turned in, that was an influence, but... They really wanted to make a high school allegory. They wanted to look at this as the loss of virginity, kind of uh, maybe an update on Carrie. You want to talk about legacy? I wish we'd reviewed this before because all I'm seeing is, so this is the reason Carrie 2 got made. You can't tell me I'm wrong. So this is about Carrie's legacy then because we wouldn't get Carrie 2 without a Carrie and we wouldn't get the craft without that. <laughs> Again, I'm not sure what you're arguing for, and I don't know whether you stand on the things that it produced. What I'm saying is it was influential. I'm not saying important. I'm not saying the AFA needs to lionize this. Understand what I'm saying. It tapped into the potential of being able to spend very little money on a teen movie that could mix teen angst with the supernatural. Yeah, and I believe that it came about at the right time with the right actresses to become part of the Generation X zeitgeist. Okay, the right actresses. So you're already showing your hand. You think that this is a well-acted movie. I think these actresses are perfect for the roles they have, by and large. Okay. That doesn't mean they're great actresses. I mean, understand what I'm saying. I know this is trash cinema. Okay. But understand what I'm saying. Just because it's trash doesn't mean that tons of Gen Xers didn't go to theaters and see this and m millions more enjoy it on home video and HBO. 
Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we've talked many times about guilty pleasure. I think what you're talking about is the film that hits you at the right moment, what I was talking about, and it becomes something of nostalgia. You remember who you were and what was going on in your life at a certain point, and it's an identifier because this movie is very 90s. I'll give you that. It definitely <laughs> came out in no other time could it be than 1996. The music, the fashion. Vaguely lesbian subtext. That- <laughs> Breckin Meyer's haircuts. Breckin Meyer also in Clueless. But it wasn't a huge hit. I mean, again, it had no competition. It kicked off the summer against Barbed Wire. Ooh! And, like, you know, the pallbearer. <laughs> by the next week, it was bl- literally blown away by Twister. Like, I mean, it was, it was gone. So it's appropriate we're not doing this at Halloween because it wasn't even a Halloween release. Yes, it was. The kids just got out of school. Maybe they'll go see this before the tornado movie comes out. It is an interesting release time, I must say. Strange. I would think this would be a fall film. Go back to school, you know, get kids on the weekend as they really turn to school. Yeah, at least September, if not October. Yeah. All right, Arnie, you're excited. Give them the plot and we'll get into the craft. It sucks being the new girl in school, even if you're Robin Tooney's character, Sarah Bailey. Her first day of school, she's hit on by Jock Chris, played by Scream's Skeet Ulrich. But after their chaste date, Chris brags that he slept with Sarah. Now, many students view Sarah as a slut, but three outcast girls take Sarah into their clique. These three are Rochelle, played by Rachel True, who was bullied by her racist diving teammates. Then there's Bonnie, played by Nev Campbell, who has severe burn scars on her back that undermine her self-confidence, and she wears multiple layers of clothing to hide her body. The group leader is Nancy, played by Feruza Balk, who has an abusive stepfather and lives in a trailer. The other students in class whisper that these three are witches, but this time the gossip isn't wrong. Nancy, Bonnie, and Rochelle have been experimenting with witchcraft, but they needed a fourth person to complete the circle, and Sarah is a naturally gifted witch. Together, the four are able to cast spells. Sarah casts a love spell on Chris and enjoys embarrassing him in front of his friends. Sarah also helps Rochelle cast a spell on the diving team bully, and the bully's hair all falls out. Bonnie's scars are healed, and Nancy casts a spell that kills her stepfather, and his life insurance policy allows Nancy and her mother to move out of the trailer and into a high-rise apartment. But Sarah continues to advance with her magic, and Nancy feels her alpha status threatened. So she takes her friends to the beach to invoke the spirit of a powerful being called Manon. That ritual complete, Nancy seems all-powerful. Seeing her friend's ego and cruelness grow, Sarah starts to distance herself from her coven, but she has to intervene when Nancy goes to a party to sleep with Chris. Nancy has to use a spell to make Chris think she's actually Sarah, but when the real Sarah comes in, Nancy uses magic to throw Chris out a window, killing him. Sarah tries to cast a spell preventing Nancy from hurting anyone, but it doesn't work. The three witches threaten Sarah and try to kill her. Wounded from their attacks, Sarah invokes the spirit herself and uses magic to scare off Rochelle and Bonnie, then has a magical battle with Nancy, which Sarah wins. A while later, Bonnie and Rochelle approach Sarah, trying to rebuild their coven, but they've lost all their magical abilities— But Sarah turns them away, proving her magic is so strong now she doesn't even need a coven. And we see Nancy has been committed to a sanitarium as credits roll. So as we start, we start with the three witches. This is the time, this is the hour, ours is the magic, ours is the power. 
Yeah, I don't feel like are they witches or are they not is what this film is about. But this kind of movie with people with magical powers, like that's kind of the first act. Are they just trying to do this? Are they like the goths of their school, but they, they do that whole witches and Wiccan thing? Or are they? do they really have magic powers? No, that's not a mystery here. It, it's a lot of things are predictable. And, and yeah, the fact that they're just witches with power, this is not a fake out. Like this is just how they are. And that's established very early. I find this to be like Heathers with magic. And we're being introduced to the three Heathers here, and Sarah is going to be the Winona Ryder. So this is in Heather's shadow. So again, this is not the first domino. <laughs> I don't feel there's a lot of uh, Heather's humor in this. No, there's no humor in this. Heather's is a comedy to me. Again, that was the real struggle. As I started this off going, okay, these are three chicks that are summoning the need to have their fourth member. We'll find out in early dialogue that they desperately believe that in order to be all-powerful, they need a fourth member. And so coming out of the sky here during the credits, we see this plane from San Francisco bringing our main character who, again, will be pitched against them. This is not an empowerment story. This will be about a good witch who has to deal with some posers and prevail. I see this as a story about four outcast teens in a rough, bullied high school environment needing to find their own strength and some coming about it in healthy ways and others coming about it in unhealthy ways. Yeah, you don't you don't write a movie about Columbine and say the shooters were empowered by what they did. Like, just because they are able to get the upper hand on their classmates doesn't make it about empowerment. I think it does because these women find the strength to overcome all the rumor mongering and bullying. I mean, I don't like I don't see Columbine here just because one quarter of them goes evil. Empowerment comes internally. Nev Campbell's character will never learn that beauty is not just skin deep. Like it, it's only skin deep. They don't use these to overcome their insecurities. Think of Lost Boys. Lost Boys started with these people moving to a new place, and lo and behold, there's these cool kids. I don't see them as outcasts. I see them as the too cool for school. There's these, you know, exotic women that nobody knows how to deal with, and, you know, who are they, and what do they want, and the way that they're looking at her kind of feels predatory, maybe even sexualized. It's vaguely trying to recapture that Joel Schumacher vibe. Oh no, these three are definitely outcasts. When they walk down the hall, Breck and Meyer and his friends openly mock them. Chris, the football player, has already used Nancy, slept with her, and tossed her aside, slut-shamed her. I mean, these three are losers. They are the smelly kids in class that nobody wants to be around. I mean, I get it. Nancy, maybe she has a reputation. That's at least what we're told. Bonnie, she's got some scars that you can't see. They're like on her back. I don't feel like by high school kids were, would be that mean. And Rochelle, I don't know why she's an outcast. Like She's black. I, I get it. She's black. Yeah, I guess that's it. That's it. There is a cut scene that really calls out she's the only black girl at that school. It's a... Uh... Yeah. Mostly white, preppy, private Catholic school. And so you would think that this would be about the story about Revenge of the Nerds. That if if the story you're describing is that everyone picks on them, by the end, they're going to win. And they're going to bond together to do so. But in fact, again, think of Lost Boys. It's going to be about the puritanical virgin realizing these are some sordid characters I've gotten involved with. And I'm better off with my family and my family values. She is coming here from San Francisco because she attempted suicide. This backstory remains 
highly underdeveloped. Why did she want to die? Yeah, why would you move to a new town? Like, you got your parents got to find new jobs. You got to sell a house. Like, well, her mom is dead. I mean, her mom died giving birth to her. She's got a stepmom. Though. She's got a nameless stepmom who I don't think has one moment of anything with her, and she has a father who's kind of. I don't. I actually don't know enough about him to even characterize him. Maybe he's very involved in her life. This guy, I know him mostly as the dad from Flight of the Navigator, but we've seen him in RoboCop Prime Directives and Tommy Knockers. Oh yeah, that's always on the top of my mind. Both of those <laughs> series. Yeah, all, all he really does, and I thought this was a character because he does come back. Not the dad, but this homeless man who plays with snakes. I thought this character was going to be a bigger deal. Like maybe he was the one that they were worshiping as man. But no, like you get this very weird opening of it seems like a very nice house, like a big home. And just a homeless dude walks in with a snake and the dad has to chase him away. Yeah. And the symbolism of that, I mean, obviously a snake is phallic and it's scary. One would presume that if she's recoiling, her issue to get over is that she is traumatized by something that happened with a man or something or more importantly her femininity is bringing all these snakes out and she's got to deal with being an object of lust for all of these scary men that is not the story of this movie though i do not know why we have this whole snake motif because really it doesn't matter at all i take this as a little bit of foreshadowing because manon will be described as the serpent god you know he's serpents are seen as his creatures, there are going to be a lot of snakes at the end. The devil was a serpent in the Garden of Eden to yeah. tempt Eve, get her to eat the fruit. Again, I thought this homeless character was going to be a bigger deal. He's kind of reminding me of the homeless character from Hellraiser, if I'm to be honest. So you're like, why is this guy around and why is he eating flies and he never really plays into the main plot here? I think they want some creepiness up ahead before the magic really gets unleashed. And so this guy is a harbinger. Why did she try to kill herself? Do you have any thoughts on, is it that her dad remarried? What I can presume is she has all of this power that leaks out all over everything. She flies to LA. It never rains in LA, but she's sad to be moving. So it's raining and the house is leaking and all of that. And she'll talk about how her emotional state will be reflected in the weather sometimes in her life. So I'm taking it to mean that maybe she is so traumatized to have her power, her natural state of witchiness, that she couldn't handle it and try to off herself? That's my best guess. It's really, really undersold. And listening to commentaries and watching deleted scenes and all of this, what I put together is she didn't know from birth that her mother died in childbirth, and she blamed herself for her mother's death, became depressed, and ended up slitting her wrists and what i read online i didn't get this from the disc is that she also was having hallucinations of drowning in a pool of insects and reptiles and if we'd seen that scene then the snake showing up would be even creepier and again i see that as again how can we extrapolate that to so that it has some allegory to high school life as you talk about as you develop in puberty suddenly people are paying attention to you it brings out everybody including all the nasty bugs and all of that like your sexuality I, I, it's a very surprising that this movie is so chaste and doesn't have a lot of sexual undercurrent i do not see this as the story about a girl coming into command of her sexuality yeah i always feel like that's what witches are about when they're on film talk about the best witch movie the witch or the witch 
that is like some of the subtext there. It's, it's about, yeah, a woman coming of age and, you know, her empowerment is tapping into what is seen as this feminine power that masculine society has rejected. Like, the, I feel like that is the metaphor for witches. And this doesn't really do anything with that. See, what I see here is immediately upon being at this school, she is sexualized and hit on by Skeet Ulrich, who I did not recognize in this film because it does look like he muscled up to play the football jock. This is Chris you're talking about? Yeah. Chris Hooker. I did not catch his last name. <laughs> yeah. It's also clumsy because at first they sneer at her in French class, but then he decides it's established that he is wanting to sleep with every girl in high school. If, if no other reason, just to, it's a numbers game for him. And so she's new. He's going to try and, yeah, and you want to see me. I'll invite you to my football practice and you'll be so impressed. Again, if this were played for comedy and, and kind of that youthful charm, there would have been a way to buy into this. But if this is, I mean, is this, would you call this dramatic? Would you say that this is going for realism? Hyper-realism, perhaps? I mean, I get that the whole pressuring for sex on the first date in high school feels very real to me. The come see me at football practice, that is a little bit of over-masculinity that I actually can't believe Sarah falls for. <laughs> he comes on like a real jackass, and yet she still does go and watch him during practice. But this is where I really see the sexuality being forced upon her, and her empowerment's going to be overcoming the guy who ruined her reputation and tried to ruin her outfit that night. Yeah, except she wants him to, like, love her. Like, it's she goes about it in a very strange, chaste way. Like, again, she's not trying to not sleep with him. Like, that's the weird thing. She just wants him to pay more attention to her. It's all, all these messages are really weird in this movie. And again, I was surprised at how regressive and, like, unhip and unedgy this movie really kind of ended up being. That feels like it was made by the Catholic Church. These girls are supposedly rebelling against, but I'm like, the morality of this movie is largely family values and don't do drugs and don't be around those bad girls because they'll get you in a whole lot of trouble. I'm not sure I agree, but we'll discuss that as we go through. I think I see this differently than you do. Good. All right. Then I, I hope you can explain some of these scenes. But this is the moment where we do get How Soon Is Now, the Smiths cover, and she is... Although she claims to be dismissive of this boy, she is obviously enamored enough to go to his practice. That's where she's going to run into the witches for the second time. She tried to be their friend earlier in science class, and Nancy with the nose ring is just not having it. But now they're ready to take her shoplifting. It's really Bonnie, played by Nev Campbell, who sees her balancing a pencil. Sarah has never tried witchcraft or anything, but she just is a natural at it. She was able to spin a pencil in class. And so Bonnie knows this is the one we need to really empower our group. And they're going to invite her to go shoplifting with them. And this is where I definitely feel like there's cutscenes or stuff missing. Cause they're just like walking to some store to go steal stuff. And they're like, Oh, you try to kill yourself. You cut your wrist the right way. That's great. Like out of no, I, I'm like, I had to rewind this to see how did their suicide attempt come up? Oh, they just outright state it. I'm just going to put out there right now. The editing in this movie is deplorable. They cannot establish a tone and like they get confused and then they just montage and like you're it's so difficult to follow this film. It's just really a mess. I'll agree that sometimes there are some cuts here that 
make me wonder where the hell are we now? <laughs> but overall, I mean, I feel it's pretty linear. I think they saw the scars on her wrist. And yeah, if anyone knows who's thought about suicide, if you want to kill yourself, cut wrist to elbow, not across the wrist horizontally like all the TV shows show. And I will say, like, that is pretty edgy to put in a teen movie. I assume this is PG-13? No, it was, they went for PG-13. They only said fuck once because they really thought PG-13. And the MPAA said, you have underage girls doing witchcraft. That's an R no matter how many fucks you say. This is an R-rated film? Wow. Okay, because I've seen R-rated teen comedies, and this doesn't have the edge of them. It feels like it's fairly appropriate, except for its preoccupation with suicide. That was the one element that made me feel like, I don't know if I would show this to a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old girl. It's just a little too dark and unfun. There is an attempt, I'll give you this much, there is an attempt to talk about real anxieties of teenage girls they want to try and have this be about something uh that's real in in young women's lives but yet the way the awkward way it goes about and again there's no mystery here they go to this bookstore and the owner walks up to sarah oh maybe you're a natural witch i'm like this is just everyone knows there's just witches walking around in this town like what is going on well if you go to one of those shops especially in downtown la where it's probably a tourist trap you better hope that the person behind the counter looks like a gypsy and starts talking about magic. Otherwise, they're not going to really sell too many books, are they? Yeah, and, and again, it's established right here. You know, she knows those girls are bad. She knows they're shoplifting. She's not going to make a big deal out of it. She has faith in this girl. Like, this is the one that she's going to spend her money, and I'm going to give you the book. I'm going to throw it in with your candles so that you know how to work the candles. I think she charged <laughs> for that book, though. Did she? I think so. I think they're like... It was $25, I think. That seems a lot for candles. I thought the candles were 25 bucks. I don't know. <laughs> Who can say? With I, I don't know. I guess magic candles cost more than regular ones. I would think so. Red is for love. They never say what the other colors are for. Yeah, I started writing all that down. I thought that was going to be a big deal, those candles. I thought this character was going to be a big deal. You've established a mother figure for someone that lost her mother. This is someone that can obviously show her into the realm of magic. But if they were trying to go for that, they only get a couple more scenes. She's going to go back at the end and spend about 10 seconds with her and then run away. Like, (laughs) this is not what that character is here to do. I think this is Sarah going from girl to woman. And she runs to this person as a mother figure and eventually learns she has to take care of herself. Yeah, but I mean, this is not an interesting character. I mean, everything that's built up here is I have this curtain in the back. And no one can go in there. And when you're ready, we'll go pass into the curtain and you can stand on a glow-in-the-dark pentagram for a second. And then that's it. That's all that she teaches her. You would want any mentor character to have more worth than that. I think it would be too easy to have a savior for Sarah. I like that Sarah has to save herself and that this is false hope. I'm not talking about saviors. I'm talking about someone that can have an interesting dialogue with her about what's going on in her life and not just sell her some candles. Like, this is just a lame character. And and again, kind of like the homeless person, clumsily introduced and quickly disappears. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the homeless person literally disappears at this point. Like, they've walked to this place. It's daytime now. It's night and raining again, I guess. But this is where the three bitches of Eastwick decide that Sarah is their fourth because they're scared by that homeless man with the snakes again. And she thinks about him dying, or they all do, and he gets hit by a car. 
and he exits the movie. There goes my theory that he was going to be the main bad. Best scene in the film, though. The way he goes underneath those wheels and the way they shot it, that was super (laughs) cool. I'm going to give the movie all the props in the world for that shot of underneath the car carriage dragging him. That was amazing. I like that one. I also got a little hint of Raimi when they do the hood cam, where it's like POV car hood. Yeah, it's a good car death. I I assume he's dead. He's at least not getting up. He never shows up in the film again. (laughs) Yeah, we never see him selling snakes anymore. So, probably so. And again, these girls are happy because that means that they have the power to kill. Yay! And that means that they're talking to this manon or whatever that is confusingly described as the football field on which God and Satan play their games. Yeah, he is greater than God. He is everything, apparently. Yeah, they say... God and the devil were created by man, but metal is older than man. So this is made up, right? I looked up man and it was an opera in the 19th century and I couldn't find any other reference. I mean, there is a biblical reference to mammon. Like you cannot serve God and mammon. Like I didn't know if they were trying to do a play on that. It's even hard to understand what they're saying. But when I looked it up on wiki, there's nothing. I know it's man and because I had the subtitles on. I kept thinking they were talking about metal. But it's Manon. And no, not the deodorant brand. Yeah, it's Manon because, yeah, Menon by Menon. Yeah, I know that one. <laughs> Smells like Teen Spirit. But the way that it gets described, Feruza Balk finds some homeless person's couch and plops down and starts drinking hooch and laughing about how she, like, when you invoke this Manon, I mean, she describes it as a, not only just a sexual experience, but like a father figure. Like it's Oh, he is in me. Yeah, it's very sexual. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incestuous moment. And this is someone that is going to be coming from the trailer park. So I think it's playing into those Hollywood incest stereotypes. When, when we meet her stepdad, I get that sense too. Yeah. Yeah. Her whole conception is that her God is... Yeah, some raping father figure. Like, this is really... I mean, no wonder Sarah is creeped out and running away. I don't know why she wants to be friends with these girls. First of all, can we give some props to Feruza here? Now, so far in this movie, she's been the reluctant one to come along. She didn't really want Sarah. It's Bonnie that convinces her. But once they kill somebody, all of a sudden, Nancy's getting animated. And Feruza Balk, again, she is this character. And so I am enamored watching her talk about demon gods and all this power. And if something goes wrong, he makes it all better again. And her toothy Cheshire grin that Feruza has. Sadly, Robin Tooney is not up to the task of playing against a light that bright. See, I don't think Robert Tooney's bad, but it is strange to me that... Take Jason Patrick and Keith Sutherland. Like, they had an attraction to one another. There was... Yeah, if if Feruza is doing a pretty good Kiefer, we need someone that's feeling like I'm pulled into your weird, twisted ideas of sex and power, and I want to participate. Like, at no point do I feel like Sarah is ever seduced into wanting to be part of the Lost Girls. I mean, even our next scene is Sarah with Chris again, and they're kissing, and again, the weird editing, I didn't get the sense that he left angry and was going to start spreading rumors, but that's what he does, but it, but she's not 
yeah, drawn to Nancy and going, oh, yeah, that Chris is a jerk. She goes right back to him. And will always be going to him. Again, would still be with him, except he dies. And, like, who even knows, you know, she might be visiting his grave afterwards. And going back to the myth of witches, I mean, there is that idea of lesbianism. These women that want to hang around each other and, I don't know, get naked and dance in the woods. They should be going for that. There's nothing wrong with copying that idea and doing it with women in 1996. It's after Basic Instinct, The Year Abound, Go Fish is Happy. People are ready for that. It might be worth bringing up that this film went out of its way to not be offensive to witches. They had a Wiccan supervisor on staff at all times, making sure that nothing they did would be offensive to the Wiccan culture. Political correctness has gone too far. What what are you implying? That being lesbian would be offensive? No, but dancing naked around a fire might not be what Wiccans really do. Well, then show what they really do. I mean, they, they do something in nature. Well, these aren't real Wiccans. I mean, I've hung with some Wiccans. I know, I mean, this is not my perception about how they behave. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to characterize based on the few people that I've known. But th- these are like cool girls that are just alternative. They're not socially awkward. This is a Hollywood idea. And again, it's so easy to extract from that alternative ways of being and sexuality. And you don't have to go with that, but it just seems like the obvious place to take this story. And if it's not about that, why does it have to be about this asshole football guy? Like that just feels like a really regressive problem to give a character that I don't know why Sarah is into this guy. I don't know why that she wants this attention. He's terrible. At no point does he charm her either. No, I think after he does tell everyone he slept with her, she should really be done with him. Yeah, way done. Anything she does with magic should be for revenge, but I feel like it gets muddy. Yeah, I'm glad that we can see that flaw in this film together because it's a total mind blown when she finally decides I'm going to go cast a spell and it's so that he'll love her. Like, that's what you want? What I took that as is she wants him to love her so she can reject and humiliate him. No, she says something like, I want everyone to love me, including Chris. Like, it almost seemed like it was just this natural thing. I don't know why she tried to commit suicide. Maybe she has low self-esteem, doesn't think anyone loves her. So maybe that's why she was trying to cast that spell. I don't know. They should have established her character better, but I didn't take it as a thing. Like, it was a way to get revenge on Chris. It's very muddy in that regard. When Chris does come under the love spell... She doesn't use it to make out with him. She doesn't use it to go on dates with him. She uses it to humiliate him, which is what I think she should do. Well, yeah, I I think she finds it fun that he's following around like a puppy dog and embarrassing him in front of his football friends. Like, I think she does find that funny. And we'll see all the characters go through that. They're all going to have their little issue and they're going to use magic to come up with a solution for it. So I think she's having fun. I don't think that was her plot going into it, though. I don't see this character, Sarah, as ever being particularly wicked or cruel. I don't see her ever being toyed with the dark side, as it were. I feel like she's pretty wholesome and rich and privileged and has a loving father and family. And therefore, she's good. And the rest of these are lower class scum that she ought to get away from. Rochelle is not lower class. She lives in a gorgeous house there. Have we ever seen Rochelle's house? 
Yeah, they go to Rochelle's house at one point, and I was like, whose mansion is that? I mean, it was a gorgeous house. And Is that where they're having the sleepover? Yes, and Bonnie has quite a bit of money, too, because I guarantee you cosmetic gene therapy is not covered by insurance, nor is it cheap. What are they doing, injecting stem cells into her yeah. scars? And why do you bring up that she's been burned all over? I'm, I kept waiting for, oh, she tried to cast a spell as a young child or something and set herself on fire. Like, I kept waiting for backstories for all these characters to pop up. Yeah, I don't think it's even in the final edit that she got burned in a car accident. Nope, I don't remember that coming up. Yeah, I just feel like, yeah, there's so much that is thin about these girls, which would be fine if it were a comedy and we were laughing and it was just about empowerment and it was just about nerds getting revenge. Coming back to this film, as I stated, I haven't seen it since the 90s. Once my cable box decoder went out, I stopped rewatching movies over and over again and really tried to watch a lot of different films. And so I haven't seen this in 20 years. And coming back to it with fresh and older eyes, yes, Sarah's relationship with Chris and Sarah's reason for suicide, these need to be fleshed out more. They are not well written. Bonnie's scars, why is that not driven home? Was she, you know, what happened for these scars? There's interesting backstories here that need to be told, and this movie is failing at telling them. And even Rochelle's story, which is the story of white privilege torturing her, like, it's really, like, I don't understand the Brady Bunch girl. Like, I don't (laughs) like Negroids. Was that a joke? That's such a strangely underdeveloped conflict. Yeah, no, it's just racist white girl. Yeah, I'm just racist. So this movie will not be going for anything dramatically deep. It should understand that it's not interested in psychology and it should be looking for other things, either scares or comedy. And comedy seems more natural to me. When I first viewed this, I viewed it as a horror film about teenage high school girls. Really? That's how the trailer sold it. Okay, that's interesting. They sold it like you were going to get scared watching it. Well, not like that kind of thing, but like teaching Miss Tingle. You're not going to get scared watching it, but it's a horror film. What would someone coming this want to see? I would think, my guess would be, we get to see girls make out with each other. When they go out and take the city bus to the woods or whatever and start pouring their blood in a cup and start kissing each other and all of that, I would have figured there would have been a little bit... I don't know. It's a little more flesh, a little bit more fondling. Yeah, you're making it sound much more lurid than it is. Yeah, this is from the director who did just do Threesome, if you'd seen that movie, with the Baldwin and... Which one? There's like 20 of them. The, the one no one likes, Steven. And Laura Flynn Boyle. So you could see that, but I do think that this is trying to not objectify these women. Oh, stop. Objectify women. Bonnie's story is objectification. She wants to be objectified. Yeah, but I, I I think I get what Arnie's saying. The way it's shot, again, that that was kind of the surprise is I thought it would, I, I don't know, teen sex comedy. And it's not that at all because my assumption was, oh, four sexy witches or whatever. That's where they would go. But it's not that movie at all. Yeah, and you could have a sex scene without, like, doing it through the male gaze, although it is a male director. I... I've seen Nev Campbell in Wild Things. I know how that scene would play. 
Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I, I would assume that that's what this was reaching for. And so my surprise is continuously that this movie feels very chaste and seems to just be accepting the story on face value. That like, oh yeah, they're just witches and they want all of their dreams to come true here. It almost feels like a Disney movie at certain <laughs> times. Yeah, I do think you get the sense when they do this ritual. And, you know, again, this is where Sarah says, I want to love myself more and others to love her, including Chris. And Bonnie wants to be beautiful outside and in. Rochelle, you know... Stop the hate, but it's Nancy. This is where you get the sense that she is different because she just wants all the power of Manon. And so it does feel like, yeah, those three might be Disney witches, but Nancy, she she is the dark one here. Right. And I don't think you could reverse casting. You couldn't have a Robin Tooney playing this part and Feruza be the virgin. No, Feruza could play one role and it's this for the rest of her life. Yeah. <laughs> However, I do think they made a mistake. Robin Tooney was initially cast as Bonnie with the scars and i guess they couldn't find the perfect sarah and the producers said let's promote robin tooney character actor up to this point to be the lead of sarah and we'll get the party of five girl as a last minute bonnie but i don't think robin has great energy with these other three what's funny is i'm really grooving on the click of nancy bonnie and rochelle and sarah she always does feel a little bit more closed off and tentative and sometimes i even get the feeling like she thinks she's above them yeah but you you putting that on the actress i feel like that's in the story itself i feel that's in the messaging yeah yeah i kept waiting for that to play out i feel like that is what the movie is telling the audience this girl needs to get away from these bad girls I thought the spin might be because how Sarah is, she is kind of a snob. Like she would be the one that goes evil. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be Feruza. Maybe they go against expectations because of how this character seems to be written. It's not very clear. I, the only time that they, I feel like they're all in it together, they have one scene where they decide to play light as a feather, and I feel like they're all kind of enjoying discovering their power. It's the, I never had light as a feather, stiff as a board, go this well when I played it. Mm-mm. Yeah, it never worked. Bloody Mary never popped up. All of those slumber party <laughs> games failed. You know, I've always heard the urban legend of like, my cousin did it and it did work. But I've never seen Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board work either. But I think that's this movie's most memorable scene. I think that when people think of this movie, that's the spell. It was heavily featured in the trailers. And I think that if you remember one thing from the craft, it's going to be Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board. It felt like where the movie should be going. That I felt like, at the very least, there should be a lot of them bonding and getting close. So that if it all falls apart at the end, like that you would feel like that was sad. Or that they had something. But this is the only scene where I feel like, well, it's a montage. But, you know, they're walking around in slow motion like, well, you know, the Reservoir Dogs or something. And they, they, they again, you call them nerds in school. They look like the cool ones. They look like the ones that have modified their uniform and just they, they stand apart. And to the audience, at least, they look so much better than everyone else. And this is where they do start becoming cool. Like their spells start working. Laura, that racist girl, her hair's falling out. And Bonnie goes to get gene therapy again, but the scars are gone. And then we get like Nancy, like all of a sudden we get her backstory. Like I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to make assumptions what her economic level was. They called her trailer trash earlier. Okay. Yeah. They're going to spell it out real big when we meet the stepdad. One thing that I think is undersold, there was a cut scene I wish was still in there, but 
it's Sarah who steals some of Christine Taylor's hair, the blonde bully. Yeah, it's not Rochelle, which was confusing. And in a cutscene that I really wish had stayed, Sarah went and visited Bonnie in the hospital. And Bonnie begged her, this gene therapy is torture and it's not going to work. Will you fix my scars? And Sarah's scared but eventually does the spell. It's Sarah who heals Bonnie as well. If they'd left that scene in, I think it really would have helped sell some of Nancy's jealousy, is that Sarah is solving these people's problems, and Nancy is there and powerless. Oh, I think that would have confused me more, because I take it that Bonnie becomes so narcissistic, not you know necessarily because her scars are healed, but because she prays to Manon, and we'll see what happens to Nancy, because she's filled by Manon, but like invoking that spirit. I mean, we're going to be told later, like whatever you do is going to come back to you threefold. So it, having Sarah be the one that heals Bonnie, I, I don't know if that would have made sense to me. See, and what I go to is, Stuart mentioned Revenge of the Nerds, but think about Can't Buy Me Love where the geek becomes cool, and then he's so cool that he becomes cruel to the geeks who were his friends when he was on the low level of the social wrong. I see that as why why Bonnie becomes so narcissistic, is because she got elevated and became hot, and now she, because she'd been so low for so long, it had nothing to do with man, and she was just getting off on hurting other people the way she was hurt. Which, to Stewart's point about this movie being really chased, like, yeah, she becomes hostile, she takes off her flannel shirt and shows her tank top, and that's it. Again, there's no character there to explore. It'd be What if she went with Chris? I mean, there would have been ways to suddenly show that in Becoming Beautiful, she was corrupted. But uh, these supporting characters, I don't know how Rochelle feels once her nemesis starts going bald. and, and It seems like she feels bad for her at one point. But does she? I mean, like, we, we get a scene of her looking at her and then they cut away. It seems like they might even become friends because at some point they end up at the same house party and the blonde girl is now wearing an obvious wig and you feel like she's been humbled. Okay, what comes out of that? Storylines just get dropped in this movie. Oh, Rochelle totally confuses me because I, I get it. Nancy, she's evil. She, we're, she's she got the power to kill her stepdad and get that pension. And Bonnie, she's become narcissistic. I thought we'd get like two against two, maybe, but Rochelle's going to end up being bad too and I don't understand why. What I really see here is Rochelle and Bonnie are followers. They followed Nancy, and now that Sarah has proven her strength, they're following Sarah, but yet they're still cocky because of the power that Sarah's presence is giving them. When they were under Nancy, they were all losers. Now that they're under Sarah, they feel like they ruled the school because they could kill anybody, they could torture anybody. Bonnie makes people lust after her by wearing a tank top. They're on top there, and... It's really Nancy who has to exert control and bring the other two under her. I never get the feeling that Rochelle and Bonnie would have attempted to murder Sarah. I never get the feeling Rochelle's even very comfortable with the extreme punishment, although much deserved, that the racist swim girl gets. That's kind of what I mean. It's like, they, as characters, we don't know where they stand, and maybe that is the point, is that they are followers. They don't form their own identity. Well, what does that make Sarah, then? Then they should be more influenced by Sarah's wholesomeness, right? Like, they should be being better people. I'd like a scene of Sarah going too far. 
I really would. I would like a scene of where Sarah realizes I need to back off this magic shit. And maybe that happened when they took the swim girl's hair. I thought you were going to talk about maybe when she takes responsibility for Chris trying to rape her. Like, which, who oh boy, that's problematic. Well, that comes really much later. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, she he's knocking on her door at 3 a.m. and talking about moving in. And, like, he's getting more and more obsessive. She knows it's bad even then. She goes back to the shopkeeper. She talks about a reverse. And the shopkeeper is like, yeah, you can't reverse a love spell. It just has to play out. So, eventually, I guess it fades. And so, the expectation is she's just got to live with what she's done. I feel like at that point, Sarah is in no way any more entertaining using magic to influence people in negative ways. She is not going to go there. And so if this were a drug movie, she would have to have an OD. She would have to have a fall from grace. You would want to take her to a morally gray area. But for whatever reason, Sarah remains this puritanical, uninteresting character. I guess she was morally gray when she did cast that love spell. I I just wish that there had been a darker moment for her. She does say there's that warning told to them. You think you're getting what you want, but it's going to come back on you threefold. She's the one who's more tentative about it. And I don't know, maybe she's Glenda the Good Witch and just naturally good and Feruza's the Wicked Witch. I, I guess that's kind of what this movie's coming down to. I agree with you. These are really thin and underwritten characters. Even more troubling because, again, the bad character is the one that comes from low means, that has to steal and, like, you know, drinks and is having incest with a stepfather character. Again, like, so someone is born good and someone is born bad, and those can't be changed, I think, is just a troubling message to put out, period. And again, there's the issue of class. Like, Sarah, obviously, that that's a big house they're moving into. They were able to move from San Francisco to L.A. versus the trailer trash, as they call her. Like, And you just get the socioeconomic politics of that whole fight between Nancy and Sarah. Yeah, and Sarah's legit. She was born this way. She inherited it from her mother. Her mother was a witch. And so it all just comes to her so easy. She doesn't have to work at it. But all those posers, those wannabe money-grubbing wannabe witches that don't have shit, and live in trailers. Well, you went, if you give them a little power, then they go move into penthouses. Wait, $150,000 policy. And somehow her mom has bought, like, in L.A. <laughs> it was 1996. L.A. downtown was not developed. A penthouse? A jukebox? <laughs> a red convertible on $175,000? That might get you a down payment, but I doubt if her credit check passes. Yeah, this is just sending all kinds of bad messages about you can't throw money at poor people because look at what they do. But I do love the scene where Nancy and her mother are told about the policy. The way Feruza goes from, like, bored, because she doesn't really care he's dead, to stunned, to elated. I mean, Feruza is this movie. If you don't like her performance, turn it off. Yeah, I I, I wonder what this movie is, though, to you. If, if Feruza were this movie, and to me, Feruza is an edgier presence than you would put in Clueless, I would figure you would want this movie to 
to be even more like Lost Boys. I mean, Lost Boys at a certain point is a vampire movie. You know, it has comedy and it has the teen sex stuff. But in the end of the day, there are fright scenes and jump scares. And I don't feel like that's happening at, at all in this movie. We'll get some at the end, I think. The very end. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about we have to wait till the climax before it decides to be the movie it advertised itself to be. I agree. And I'm confused by the tone of this because, again, I I think I was a lot like you, Stuart. When you saw it the first time, I thought it was going to be Clueless with witches or Mean Girls with witches, something like that. I thought there's going to be a lot more comedy. And no, I I don't even think they're trying to be funny in this. But they're not trying to be scary. Every so often there might be a sly statement or some irony, but no, they're not trying to be funny. This is played serious. But is it scary? It's not scary to me, and it's not even dramatically believable. So what is this? I don't think it's trying to be scary. Again, it's like you want a uh, sincere view of of what teenagers with witch powers is like? Here you go. It's, It's weirdly neutered in that regard. There's horror that deals with vampires and witches and things, but it's not trying to necessarily scare so much as just deal with demonic stories. I've never heard you compliment a movie like that. Let's review more of them. John Carpenter's (laughs) Vampires next week. (laughs) I feel like you usually are the one making the case where I want the gore, I want the splatter, I don't give me no PG-13. This movie isn't a slasher. This movie isn't about the body count. There's barely a body count. It's three if the homeless guy died. I mean, what about all those sharks? Yeah, I mean, they do the Manon Spring Festival or whatever, and this is the moment where Nancy has become Jesus or something because she's got stigmata on her palms and walking on water. I couldn't believe she walked on water. I I was cracking up. That is probably the funniest scene in this film. What are they going for there? Like, is that a moment to be horrified? Is that a moment to be, oh, she's gone too far? Are we giggling? I I, I honestly, what what am I to be experiencing? I just don't know why Manon wants a bunch of sharks to die for him. Like, there's all these beach sharks all of a sudden. Uh, To me, that's a bad omen. Yes, that's how I took it. (laughs) Manon is representing the natural world and animals are dying. Something tells me pretty loudly, you guys are gone too far. And of course, the next scene is them driving through intersections and making the, the lights change to green at the last minute and almost having a car accident. They're telling us in all kinds of ways, these girls have gone too far. They've abused this sense of power. But are you getting a sense of in the tone of it. Arnie, what are you experiencing when you're watching these things? Exhalation. I'm kind of with them. I'm understanding their emotional journey as they finally feel like, especially Feruza, has all the power that there can be. You're identifying with Feruza Balk? Is that your character then at this point? No, I'm saying all four. Sarah's the most reticent, but Sarah was there summoning the spirit just as much as the other ones. She came into the circle with perfect love and perfect trust, so they were all there, but now that the sharks are dead, Sarah starts getting a little bit nervous, whereas the other two, they're giddy on power. And so I find this movie to be fun. Now, let me call out how great the soundtrack of this movie is. Oh, boy. That's, is that where Here you're we going go. To, this, this I asked you how this story is making you feel, and you say, the soundtrack. Come on. He really loves that Smiths cover. <laughs> you know what? The score is very much a, uh, it made me smile thinking about a time when this kind of music was popular. 
Yeah, I mean, you got some Matthew Sweet, you got some Jewel, you got some Space Hog, Our Lady Peace, I mean, Heather Nova covering Peter Gabriel. I haven't thought of these bands since then, but a good soundtrack helps carry mood. It is why you put songs underneath, is because songs can convey mood in three minutes, and so it is helping supplement this film. When they're driving through those intersections and a 90s rock song is playing, I'm rocking. I feel like I'm rocking with them in the car. So, yes, the music is helping where the script is failing. Okay, well then buy the score, right? Go buy those albums. But, like, this is a movie. There are several movies that I enjoy because of the music more than anything. The Wraith and Bohemian Rhapsody both are not great films, but the music makes them entertaining watches. Okay, so then it's getting dark, and that means we got to get into things like, well, yeah, rape. Chris is, like, taking out Sarah to Mulholland Drive Lookout. At first, it's kind of funny because he's agreeing with everything that she's saying, no matter what it is. And then she's like, I'm going to walk home, which I don't know how you do from Mulholland Drive. I think she lives (laughs) in the Palisades. That would be a very long walk. But anyway, then it turns dark, turn on the Portis head, and he is chasing her, trying to uh, take advantage of her. And she isn't the one that is going to kill him. I think it would have been interesting if they had made the choice that Sarah could go dark or maybe that this is the break. Yeah, that would be her turning point. Yeah. Like, oh, I've gone too far. I got to stop doing this man and stuff. You know what would have been an interesting rewrite to this? Imagine if Feruza was the one who came to town and Sarah was the wannabe witch and Feruza's power, you know, allowed it to happen. You know, the new person in town becomes enamored with the power and does the killing. And the person who thought they wanted the power is the one who turns away from it. That would be an interesting character arc for two people opposing each other. In this movie, if Sarah killed someone, that's an irredeemable sin. So as it is, she has to run. I'm trying to figure out what kind of love spell means rape. You know, love I take as affection and adulation and, you know, warm feelings. At what point does love turn into, I don't give a shit, I'm getting in your pants? Yeah, I don't think it should have gone this dark, honestly. Or the movie should have been more dark all over. I, I don't know. I don't know how to help this movie. It, it's it's fascinating to see how it careens from tone to tone, and each scene just kind of collides with the next and obliterates my expectations, at, at least, that this was going to be something charming for young girls to feel <laughs> empowered by. You're not charmed? No, I'm not. I almost wish she had used her power here in some way, because what I want to see is a woman becoming empowered and fighting off date rapists. Yeah, if you're going to have the scene, Sarah should have done something other than run to Rochelle's house. Because Rochelle must live closer than the Palisades. Right, right. And here's an interesting choice. Nancy seems to resent what's happened because Chris likes Sarah and rejected her. It's been said that that she slept with him, got a social disease, and feels like... She's still hung up on him, too. Again, this is all about getting an awful boy. Her going to him, impersonating Sarah. This could really mean something. 
You know, there's a way to write it where this really could matter, where Nancy is really hurting Sarah by sleeping with her boyfriend and pretending to be Sarah. You know, there's really a way that could be played where even with all the power, if there hadn't been the whole love spell, like if you had two people, if you actually had a boyfriend and then you had the obsessive stalker guy and a love triangle and then having, God forbid, Carrie too did this better is what I'm saying, because there was the nice guy in the spur posse and then the rest of the people in the spur posse. I can't believe you even remember Carrie, too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm struggling with that one, but I kind of remember it a little bit. Carrie, too, took this plot and did it a little bit better. But it would have never happened if the foundation wasn't set with the craft. That is correct. But, yeah, I wish this had meant more. I mean, because there's that love spell, it means nothing that Chris turns down Nancy, and it means nothing that then he gives in when he thinks Nancy is Sarah. All of this is meaningless, and I never really got that the reason Nancy has been so pissy this whole movie is because Chris had sex with her and dumped her. I never got until this scene, and what kind of revenge is this? It's it's all, this scene is very strange to me, and I wish it had been written differently. I could say that about the whole movie, but I will give a compliment since I've been giving a lot of you know, shade. Uh, Feruza Balk shaking her head like a wet dog, floating on her, the tips of her toes, just kind of going crazy here. Oh, it looks great. You do feel like she could have done it. If they decided to make this a full-on horror movie, she could have carried that movie. She could have given that movie what it needed. She kind of looked a little Tim Curry Frankenfurter, but like she, <laughs> she makes it work. See, and I'm... I'm I'm thinking she looks like she came out of a Tim Burton film. But yes, Feruza is this character and could have gone way, way dark. I wish that they had intended this to be R-rated from the beginning because you could have really had some fun. Yeah, I feel like in this moment, I understand what she could have done if the movie had been tailored for her. Just It seems like everything up to this point was calculated wrong. But now they're in the kind of horror movie that she could have excelled at. Yeah, for the last half hour of this film, it's going to be Sarah versus Nancy. And that's where, you know, it three-act structure, the first act was getting the coven together, second act was learning the powers and transitioning to good versus evil. Now we have the showdown and the movie becomes a lot simpler. And better, I, I will say I, I am into this last act. Yeah, it's the best part of the film. Yeah, it starts off, Sarah's trying to do this binding spell on Nancy so she can't do any harm. And I guess I guess you could just sense when someone's doing a spell on you. I love when the three of them come flying in to attack Sarah. That's straight out of the Lost Boys. Oh yeah, it is. See, it reminded me of the three vampires from Dracula. If you remember, the three women vampires visited Jonathan Harker while he was staying in the castle. That's what I went back to with the three witches coming in and hovering over the bed and being threatening. I remember that scene might have been an influence, but there is literally like the window opens and they fly in just just like the climax of that Schumacher film. But then it kind of ends. Again, I feel like there's coitus interruptus and there's just so much about this that that feels uh, unsure. Like I feel like the director has no control over what's going on. What happened with some of this ending is this stuff wasn't in there. And then the test screenings went really well, and the studio looked at this and is like, here, here's five million more. Let's go put some more fight in this ending. Let's put some more effects in. 
Let's make this ending bigger. Because it did well? Usually if it does well, you don't put any more money in it. They gave out cards and people said, I like this. Yeah. Wow. And again, it was like effects go here. It wasn't a completed film, but they did have a series of reshoots with a lot more money for some of these special effects and things like Feruza being dragged on her toes. They didn't have the money for that initially. They were able to pick that up and add the dragging on the toes. And and there was a scene and it was deleted and it's deleted for good reason because I think Robin Tooney's really bad in it. But Nancy finds out about the spell because she overhears Sarah talking to Rochelle and Bonnie saying, I tried to do this spell. It didn't work. I think if we all three do it together, we can stop her from doing more harm. They're torn. And Nancy overhears this and comes in and bitches them out for being weak-willed and kicks Sarah out of the coven, basically, and starts to threaten her there. So they cut that scene. It becomes a little bit of a jump that she does the binding spell and Nancy somehow knows. It's so abrupt that suddenly they've all turned on her in this way and things are literally exploding and the implication is they're bringing down airplanes to kill her parents. And like, it's so like, okay, maybe she tied up her picture in a knot or something (laughs) like that. But that feels like a crazy overreaction to that. What's weird to me is you get this scene where Sarah goes back to the bookstore and the owner takes her into this backroom temple and is like, you know, I'm going to teach you what to do. Am I the only one who thought that the bookstore woman was going to be Feruza Balk in disguise again? Oh, I thought it was going to be the reincarnation of her mom. Yeah, it was the mom, obviously. I I was really stunned because she kept talking about how that ring belonged to your mother. Yeah. I thought, I thought lasers or something were going to shoot her and she'd be the mom or something. like. But all of a sudden there's like an explosion and so she just runs away and I'm like, what was that from? Are Nancy and the other two outside? Like, what is this all a psychic war? Like, why was there just an explosion? Glamour. <laughs> it was a really, really bad fire effect. I can't believe yeah. they were given more money, and this is what they do with it. That looked really bad. Feels like an editor that's been given an incomplete movie trying to fix it in post is what a lot of this scrambling and, and uneven tone feels like. It feels like a it feels like a disaster of a shoot that they're trying to salvage. And I can't believe that you're telling me <laughs> that they gave it more money. And then when she goes back home. Did her parents really even go to San Francisco? I mean, what we're told is they thought Sarah had run away back to San Francisco, so they flew to San Francisco to find her, and their plane crashed. No, this did not happen. This, I guess this is part of the spell they did to trick her, but it is so abrupt. Again, talking about the editing, I'm like, wait, what? They just, they just flew to San Francisco and like wrote something down in the yellow pages so she'd know? At no point do they seem like, where did Sarah go? Now, one scene of them being like, have you seen Sarah? We haven't seen them since the beginning of the movie. The father came out and scared away Skeet Ulrich. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The dad doesn't even have a name. And so, like, he's just this anonymous thing. The mom is just some photograph. And the dad is just some guy with a with a fireplace poker that killed a snake. And I'm like, who makes a teen movie where that's all the parents are? Like, that just doesn't compute with me. There are so many teen movies where parents don't exist. Yeah, usually they don't exist, literally. Like, there's just no reason for parents. Like, it's Saved by the Bell. Besides Mr. Belding, there's no parents, usually. Are there good movies, Arnie? I'm sure there's many of them. Are Can you name of some classic teen movies where they do that? I mean, every Disney movie, they don't have parents. And most Nightmare on Elm Streets, 
there might be one of the group who has a mother who's evil. But by and large, the kids on Elm Street existed without parents. Is that your frame of reference? This, that, I, I was talking about a teen movie. You're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, you, we've already established this is not a slasher film. No, but this is a type of horror. I was thinking of horror comparatives. This screenwriter sucks. He also wrote Flatliners, which also sucks. <laughs> okay, so, yes. I don't know where the parents are, but their house is being blown up. They're trying to make her kill herself or make it look like she'll kill herself and when all else fails we got a knife and we'll literally just slash her wrist which is like just shocking that they're like no now we're just going to murder you <laughs> i like the build-up though again this is a fun haunted house like the shadows turn to snakes i actually rewound it. i'm like did that just happen yeah it did and look some of the cgi when like fingers turn to snakes not great but i i'm meeting the movie at its level like i'm having fun with this haunted house ending I am too. It's, you know, taking it for what it is, a magic off, a final duel between these two. And Feruza is winning in the personality competition. If I could vote for one to win, I'd vote for Feruza. Is there anyone you like other than Feruza in this movie? I actually really like Bonnie and Rochelle. You like Bonnie and Rochelle? The weak, miltose people that have no even sense about, like, we're hurting people, but we're not even sure we care? Like, they have no personality. They have a sense of fun about them. And yeah, they're they're wishy-washy and weak. But really, I enjoy the coven, except for Robin Tooney, who just... I can't believe you're dogging on her. Like, I feel like she's at least trying. Like, she's known to have done some good dramatic work after this movie. It's not her that I'm putting this on. It's these these poorly designed characters. But you do. You like the coven, except for her. And I would argue, if anyone liked this movie at all, it's one person. Feruza Balk doing what she's doing here. It's a one-woman show. She is the best, by far. When she's on screen, nobody else is. The makeup, the again, that giant grin, her use of power. I, I believe she'd kill a bitch. Yeah, no, I, I believe... That, yes, I, I guess what I'm saying is I felt like it was not that long ago that they were hanging out on the beach and like catching butterflies and stuff. Like, it's really weird that she's at the point of I want to kill you because you put my photo in a binding spell. Also, keep in mind, she's been filled with a demon. Manon entered her. She has been given unlimited power. She is corrupt. So you say... There's no special effect to show us that. Like, there's never been anything to establish Manon. We will never see it. Ah, uh, the dead sharks. You know what I mean. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, that could all just be made up and she could just be angry. Like, I mean, Manon is a non-factor in this climax. Yeah, again, I thought that homeless dude was going to come back as Manon. They, they, they'd have to team up and to fight him or something, but nope. Actually, Manon is the climax because the way Sarah overcomes is by calling Manon. Again, but who does she call? She calls the photograph of her mother. Like, so, like, it feels like a feminist thing, even though it's not. The thing is, she sends a message that Manon is upset that you abused the power he gave you. So is it Sarah's mother that entered her? Is it Manon that entered her? Somebody entered Sarah and gave her the power to overcome Nancy. It should be the mother, but they she says it was Manon. Yeah, and, and, and what gets said is Sarah's afraid to, to invoke... 
because she doesn't want to go crazy like Nancy has. She's afraid that if she uses her power, she'll lose control. And what her mother is trying to say, I think, I mean, again, these are lines that are people are saying in a loud, breezy movie where I can barely pay attention. But I think her mother is saying, no, you have the ability because you're a real witch and that piece of trash isn't. I take it to mean Sarah can hold her smoke. <laughs> Because she's a natural witch. Again, like she was born with it. Like, again, there's just, it gets to something that I tie to the economics of it all and just all the identity politics of it all. Like, I feel like Sarah's the good one and you'll always be bad because you are. Well, the other two didn't come from the trailer and they The other two don't matter. The other two are nothing. They are, (laughs) they will blow with the wind east or west. It doesn't even matter to them. It is a movie about two characters. Yeah, the other two do get scared off pretty easily. Sarah does a glamour to make Bonnie think that the burns are back and on her face and that Rochelle thinks she now is losing her hair. And the two just leave. And they're done. Yeah. Which would have been, like, poetic justice if it did roll back on them. I mean, it wouldn't have been wrong if it were real, but we can see when they're leaving that they look fine. They're not losing their hair. They don't have the burns again. It's just more glamour. But the showdown is very fun between Sarah and Nancy, and it's over pretty quickly, though. I mean, a double kick to the gut, Nancy flies down the hall, smashes into a mirror, game over. How does she end up in an asylum from that? I don't even understand. Who are you going to call? Like, I mean, like that, I need to visualize how, like, people in white coats came. Do you think her mom put her in a, like, a, a state institution or she's using that cool 175K <laughs> to, to put her in a private one, get her the best help? I don't know. I don't know that there's much left of that money, but. <laughs> they blew it on the jukebox. Mm, all that Connie Stevens. You know, I really felt bad for the mom when the mom wants to celebrate with the girls and the girls are slam the door in her face and the mother just is too uncool because she's old and the kids want nothing to do with her. That made me sad. Because you're too old and the kids want nothing to do with you now? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean, it reflects more on me <laughs> than this movie. <laughs> It's that she loved Connie Stevens and the kids didn't know who Connie Stevens was. And somebody says, who's Connie Stevens? But they literally don't care enough to stick around for the answer. I feel like somebody might ask me the same question about Juliana Hatfield. (laughs) And so, yeah, we find at the end that Rochelle and Bonnie lost their power. And I can't tell if they come snooping around because they really want to start the coven again and get the power or if they just are trying to find out if they can laugh at Sarah because Sarah lost her power, too. Yeah, a little of both. Again, who knows with characters this underwritten, you know, they need to have someone to hang on to. They have no identity of their own. But uh, Sarah drops a tree on them and lets them know. And yes, Feruza Balk is in an insane asylum, maybe in real life. I haven't seen her in years, but... (laughs) Watch the documentary on the island, Dr. Moreau. Like, there's a lot of paranoia going on with her. But she's clawed her own face, and she claims she can fly, and they're just drugging her up with sedatives, and she's like, I'm flying! Yeah, I, I I feel like she's trying to, like, audition for the movie they didn't make. Of Like, look, I could have done all of this for you. Why are you <laughs> sticking me in this room? It has a real exorcist vibe here at the end, with her on the bed, laying there with the clawed face. But I know you guys don't think this is an exorcist. So, but Jacob Stewart, well, really, Jacob, do you recommend the craft? <laughs> 
I, I am going to start. I, Stuart, I think you're too harsh on this film. Arnie, I think you're way too easy on this. And and yeah, I don't think there's a long legacy, even though the next one we're going to watch has a legacy in the title. I don't think this is a film that made a big impact in Hollywood and, and brought on a lot of other things. I will say this. I think this film is pretty mediocre. It's no worse than a lot of other mediocre horror films. It is frustrating that... The tone of it, I will say that that's what I struggled with the most because I thought like you, Stuart, that this was going to be scary, clueless and no, there's no humor and it seems like it wants to treat all this witchcraft stuff like like to serious drama, which is you could do that, but you got to have some good writing. This does not have good writing. It doesn't have fleshed out characters. But again, for this type of film. Uh, this isn't great. Like, there's a lot of problems with the script. I'm not connecting with these characters. And then the third act happened, and I'm like, oh, this is a fun haunted house. Maybe because I'm watching this, even though this is getting released in November, I'm watching this right before Halloween. And, you know, I, I try to think what makes a good Halloween movie. It's not always, like, just scary movies. Like, you could have scary movies with monsters, but they're not really, like, tapped into Halloween. I, I uh, sometimes go with more campy-type horror films that I feel just get into that Halloween spirit more and then you have some you know pretty scary stuff later on so this to me look it's not a bit of honey and I know people there's some people my wife loves bit of honeys I hate them I would get so mad when I got those when I was trick-or-treating it's not that bad it's you know it's not a Reese's peanut butter pumpkin that's the best thing you could get in your your jack-o'-lantern for Halloween it's not that it's like a three musketeers there's some chocolate there that you could enjoy and then a bunch of fluff that's not the greatest but it will do the job like yeah I know this is coming out in November this is no Thanksgiving feast and I'm not going to judge it on that level I don't think it has those aspirations it's kind of just a trashy mediocre film that's fun for the last 30 minutes and so don't watch it right now just wait till next halloween and like it will fit in with those movies so there's my recommend like watch it in october if you want week recommend Stuart. okay i i'm happy to stand alone on this one <laughs> there is no craft to this i mean there's no artistic I mean, I don't need to even go on. Like, the answer is no. Hell no. It's a really bad film. It's badly edited. It doesn't have slick visuals. Like, all of the characters are meaningless. A story about a privileged white virgin being better than other people is not usually what you see projected in teen dramas. But if you're a privileged white virgin and you feel dogged on by all those other films, this is your movie. You can now feel like you are, you are right to feel entitled and born great. A terrible film from start to finish. I just absolutely hated this film. Hey, Sarah has a much better character arc than Ray. God damn it. <laughs> and coming back to this film, I bring a lot of nostalgia and standing against the torrent of hate coming from Stewart, coming against Stewart's Feruza Balk, I hope I stood half as strong as Sarah here. But I'm bringing a lot of nostalgia for this one. Watching it in the 21st century, watching it, as we say, with the now playing goggles on, I kind of went, oof, they're going to tear me apart. <laughs> I really was expecting both of you to gang up on me and beat me up. Here's the thing, I wouldn't beat you up if you would just admit it was terrible. <laughs> I can I fully understand and sometimes you just like a terrible movie. I mean, I could I can understand what that is, but you're <laughs> trying to tell me like there's something here. Watching it this time, I see that these characters are incredibly underwritten. There's things dropped that are not justified. The backstories need to be fleshed out. 
the romance love triangle needs to explain where it's coming from. Sarah needs a bit more of an arc, so she's not goody-goody the whole time. They need to be able to take a little bit more of a risk with that character. Don't make her go and kill somebody, because that might be too dark, but have something happen that she realizes she's gone too far. There are many ways this could be rewritten, and I do wish that we were getting a remake instead of a sequel, because I do think that Mean Girls with Magic is a film I'd like to see. Are we getting a sequel? I, I haven't seen a trailer. I don't know anything about it. It feels like a way to reboot it. I have been promised David Duchovny. That is what I've been told. <laughs> David Duchovny is in this movie, and I noticed that all of the key roles are occupied by women. So I imagine that it might be very contemporary third-wave feminism in that the director, the writer, the cinematographer, the editor, the composers, I think that they're going to be able to... And I think this movie needs it. I think it needs a strong feminist voice. And it didn't come through in this movie at all. So, yes, I, I could see next week being essentially a remake, uh, but with clear ideas about subtext and character and storylines. Yeah, as it is this film that I came back to and I expected to really champion, I can give it a weak recommend. I do think there's fun here. I mean, there's a line in this movie that I think... When I heard this line, it epitomized my feeling about this movie. No, I can't think. I just feel. If I think about this movie, no. But I feel this movie. Mad it is in you. You love this movie, but you can't explain why. Is the truth of the matter. You don't You don't have words for why this... You are under its spell. It has <laughs> black magic cursed you. And for reasons like Chris, you're following it around saying, I love you, I love you, even though it treats you so bad. <laughs> Not true. I mean, looking at this film objectively, I feel like Feruza Balt's performance, the four, you know, I... I dogged on Robin Tooney, but she has some really bad scenes and a really bad wig. But by and large, she is fine in this film. I think the four girls' charisma carries this movie and makes it fun to watch these four picked-on girls come out of their shells and become empowered through magic. I still enjoy that story, even if it's not told very well. I also love the 90s drag it wears. I love the 90s flashbacks. It takes me back to a happy place. I think if you remember the 90s, you'll find some joy in this too. Yeah, I, I, you, that's always inarguable. I mean, if movies are a time capsule, yeah, this definitely feels of its time. Again, but it's not like funny bad. Like I didn't really, I can't even enjoy this movie like to, to dog on it. It's just a really badly made movie. It's got a lot of flaws, a lot of flaws. You can puncture all the holes in it, and I can't argue it. The things you say, Stuart, it's not like I didn't see them when I watched it this time. It's not like I didn't look at it and went, oh, so I remember this movie fondly, but it isn't all that good. Yes, yes. I, I'm glad to hear you be able to admit that. That's the first step to any recovery. And it also is a good sign for the sequel, because how easy is it going to be to be better than this? Like, so easy. You say that. You say that, Oh, I Stuart. do. I do. It's better. I'm going to right now going out on that ledge. There's no way next week it's not a better film. None. I'm wrong so many times. It's not like I have confidence in myself. I'm always making bad prognostications. I mean, do you, but do you have confidence in Blumhouse? Yeah, I feel like they could do it. Yeah, I feel like You anybody. saw Fantasy Island, didn't you? Yeah, well, I've seen uh, many of their films, and most of them are better than the craft. <laughs> 
in the meantime, this Friday, if you want something a little bit more crafty, you can join our patron feed where we're discussing JFK. <laughs> what a combo. <laughs> I guess it's something else for me to shoot at. But yes, it's here it's actually a very important moment in history. November 23rd is this Sunday. We're releasing the podcast timed on Friday for us to reevaluate what happened through the perspective of everyone's favorite crackpot conspiracy theorist, Oliver Stone. It's a, it's a big show, and I hope you guys can contribute to Now Playing and experience it. You can find the details by going to nowplayingpatron.com. We always give our $10 patrons one bonus show per month. So every month there's a new show that only can be listened to by patrons. This month we're giving you two. You got JFK this Friday. And if the craft legacy isn't exactly filling you up for Thanksgiving, we're going to have Guess Who's Coming to Dinner next Friday. And if you're looking for more movies to watch than just the ones we're reviewing, thanks to Redbox Entertainment, we are giving away five digital download codes to the new movie Chick Fight, starring Malin Ackerman, Bella Thorne, Alec Baldwin plays Ackerman's alcoholic trainer, tells the story of a woman who, beaten up by life, decides to punch back by joining an all-girl fight club. To enter the giveaway, all you have to do is subscribe to our In Focus newsletter. It's a newsletter that comes out every Friday. If you head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click subscribe at the top. You're going to see a form there where you just enter your email address and you are subscribed. You'll get our newsletter every week with updates on our podcast and what's going on in the movie biz. And you will be entered to win one of the giveaways we do, such as this one for Chick Fight. So thank you for listening to this week's Now Playing. And until next time, this is the end. We let you go in peace. So does stuff like tonight happen to you a lot? No, not, not like that. Other stuff. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I can feel him running through my veins. He's still in me. So amazing. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Show us your glory. Show us your power. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. You know my favorite kind of movie? Period pieces. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Are you going to pay for those? Uh-huh. They're not like your friends.
You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. You gotta try it. Find the details on our website. Listen to me, please. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. It was real good, thanks for asking. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Did you tell your friends? No, but I will. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Your difference is your power. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I know what I'm talking about! I'm in touch with the man! Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. He takes everything that's gone wrong in your life and he makes it all better again. Now Playing credits read by Brock. That's so funny. I was just thinking I have no idea what I'm talking about. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. So you've really never played Two Truths One Lie before? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. I'm sorry, my defenses are up. People here have been really rude to me. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Relax, what's the matter with you? Relax. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. All right, let's hit the road, baby girl. Can I... Can I finish? (laughs) I'm going to Ross Perot you since we're in the 90s. Can I finish? The Wraith and Bohemian Rhapsody both are not great films, but the music makes them entertaining watches. Okay. And I want to be noted as the first person in history to use the Wraith and Bohemian Rhapsody in the same comparative. Yeah, I mean, the Wraith. Okay, you can stop right there. That's a recommend for you. Yeah, this is better than the Wraith. So, okay. Hey, Sarah has a much better character arc than Ray, goddammit. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard that. No. I said Sarah. Siri thought I said Siri. I said Sarah has oh. a better arc. Siri says I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> yeah. Agreed, Siri. Agreed. I don't know how I'm going to get through next week either. We're going to have guess who's coming to dinner next Friday. For dinner. Isn't it for dinner or two, two dinner? dinner? Oh, okay. For dinner would be I like guess some for dinner cannibal. Means yeah, some cannibal yeah. comedy. This is the end. We let you go in peace. That was from this movie? Yes. Wait, who said it? 
This is the end. We let you go in peace. Sounds like a Dolph Lundgren movie. You go in pieces. 